Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of the Movie Brats podcast. I am Carter, and joining me as always is Jonathan. It is a special edition of the Movie Brats podcast in which me and my co-host will be counting down our top 10 movies of the previous 10 years. Jonathan, do you want to go ahead and lay out the parameters for our rankings and then get us started with your number 10? Okay, so this is do you agree with me that we're going to pick films that whatever it was first whenever it was first released whether it was a film festival so we're we're not going to count for example if a film came out at a film festival in 2009 and had a u.s release in 2010 we're just counting from when it first premiered anywhere is that how you do it yeah yeah so we're doing from 2010 to 2019 and we're only doing feature theatrical films so it has to be 60 minutes or longer. It has to have played in a theater. It can't be a television show or a uh, you know TV movie. It has to be a feature theatrical film from 2010 to 2019. Is that the parameters? Yes. I know we have to lay that out because otherwise you would have put Twin Peaks The Return possibly at number one on this list. Okay, so I have to go on my little spiel about how Twin Peaks The Return... <laughs> I agree with Cashew de, Caillou de Cinema that it is the best, I'll, I'll phrase it, the best moving image work of art of the decade. Uh, I think, yeah, th- to me, it's number one, no question. I think there's no other film that comes close to the achievement that David Lynch did. But I completely agree that it is a television season. Uh, or you might say it's a TV miniseries. A television event is, series. Yeah, it is not a film. It did not, it did not, I actually saw it over the first weekend of 2018, uh, all 18 hours over three days uh, at the Museum of Modern Art on the big screen, but it did not screen, it did not qualify for Oscars. It uh, aired on television week by week. So I do not think it is a film, but I think it is better than any film that came out in the whole decade. So that is no questions asked and we recommend anyone who has not seen it to seek it out uh on whatever i'm sure showtime has streaming services where you can get it or you can buy it off amazon.com and get it (laughs) as quickly as 24 hours probably and be consuming twin peaks the return as quickly as that you have to watch the original series and fire walk with me first uh because the new season makes which was on netflix is it still on netflix yeah, I think it's on like all three streams. It's on Hulu and Amazon and Netflix. It's on all three. It's also outstanding. Yeah, but uh, anyway, I completely stand Twin Peaks: The Return. Is that what the kids say? I think that is what the kids yeah. say. Do you want to get us started on our definitive top ten of the previous ten years with your number ten movie? Okay, uh, my number ten is now. I think Boyhood is an amazing film, but I hit Richard Linklater's 2013 film Before Midnight as my number 10. Uh, I, I I remember I had three years in a row where my number three film was a Richard Linklater film, Bernie, uh, Before Midnight, Boyhood. I actually think this is a rare series where each film gets better. I think Before Midnight's the best in the series. I love the first one. The second one's even better. And the third one is the best so far. I think it's so brilliantly written and it's so well acted. I think it's, I would say it's along with First Reformed, Ethan Hawke's best performance. 
And it, while the first one is two people falling in love, the second one is two people falling back in love. And then the third film is they're in love, but their marriage is, uh, you know, not entirely on the best of terms. And I, it's, the, the, it's such a rich series altogether. But I just thought Before Midnight was so beautifully shot and constructed. And it's, it, it's, it's a film that's both so well constructed, the writing, the acting, but it seems so seamless. It seems like it's not directed. So I, 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 that's my number 10, Before Midnight. Well, this is a spectacular way for us to get started, because as a matter of coincidence, Before Midnight, directed by Richard Linklater from 2013, is also my number 10 movie of the previous 10 years. Uh, like Jonathan said, it is the third of the Before trilogy, with Before Sunrise, then Before Sunset, and in my opinion, Before Midnight is unquestionably the best of the three. And I'm not sure if this will be on yours. Boyhood was another one I was thinking about. A movie I like a lot, but I had seen Boyhood before I saw Before Midnight, despite Before Midnight being released earlier, and Before Midnight just blew me away when I saw it. The dialogue, I think, co-written with uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, who were just amazing as the central couple, uh, is just so good. And I love Richard Linklater's version of realism, where <laughs> we did on a previous podcast a discussion of 1917, which the gimmick of that is that the whole thing is one continuous shot. There are some scenes in Before Midnight that are like 10-minute long takes of them just walking and talking, which is some of the best stuff you could you know see in any movie. It's just outstanding. Uh, amazing coincidence, Before Midnight, number 10 for both of us. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think that Richard Linklater is one of our greatest living directors, especially American, and he's at the height of his um, creative, uh, you know, genius. Uh, Boyhood, Before Midnight. I, I think Bernie is such an underrated film. It's one of the best comedies of the decade. Uh, Jack Back's best performance. Yeah, well... My number nine pick is the 2014 film Whiplash by Damien Chazelle. This is one of the greatest theater experiences I ever had. I went to New York City on a trip for the first time by myself. Uh, I had been a few times with my family, but I flew up and I went to the horror convention in New Jersey. And I just spent three days in New York City seeing movies. I saw uh, John Wick in IMAX. I saw Birdman. I saw Godard's film Goodbye to Language in 3D, which was really kind of the main reason I wanted to go into New York to be able to see that in 3D. But I went to see Whiplash. I hadn't seen his previous uh, feature film, the, the black and white musical he did. But I didn't know too much about the film. I basically knew it was about a drummer. Uh, I knew it got really good reviews. And I sat down in the theater and... 10 minutes into the movie, I said, this is going to be the best film of the year. And it, like, more than almost any movie I've seen in a theater, uh, that especially that's not an action movie, that movie just grabs you and does not let go. It is exhilarating. It is heart-pounding. It is just so powerful. And the ending, I thought the main character was going to have a heart attack in the final, and I thought... I was going to have a heart attack. I thought he was going to murder somebody. Like, I mean, I, I walked out of the theater wanting to like go up to strangers and go like, you really should go see this movie. It's so good. Yeah. I, I, I just, that 
part of it is because of the experience of watching it, seeing it in New York City and just going in to see a movie. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's and I I really do not like La La Land. Uh, uh, but I think Whiplash is just a masterfully directed film and it's. Miles Teller is great. That J.K. Simmons, one best supporting actor. Whiplash is just uh, the film critic. One of them called it Full Metal Juilliard. And it is, is uh, a, a wow. I'll just say wow. That was a movie that I was thinking about putting in the top 10, but I did not. Whiplash, I think, is like the most dynamic uh, depiction of a band that I've ever seen. I wish more movies would take the cue that they take towards a subject other people would see as mundane and making it really seem extraordinary. It shows the amazing capacity of cinema to do something like that. Like, wouldn't you say some of like the rehearsal scenes of that movie are just some of like the most dynamically staged, edited set pieces of any of the movies of the last 10 years? Absolutely. Did it win best editing? I, I can't remember. I don't I'm think almost so, sure. but I mean, it might have, but it, I, I, if it didn't, that's stage robbery. And if it did, then very well deserved. Yeah, like I was really disappointed it wasn't nominated for Best Director, but he won for La La Land. I think he should have been nominated uh, for Whiplash, yeah. Um, I saw it at the Lincoln Plaza Theater, which is no longer in New York City, and that place had a special – I had a special place in my heart for that theater because I saw like almost every movie that was playing there on that trip. Right. It's just – it's one of those films that reminds you the power of cinema, just what – how – visceral and gripping a film can be and this is a film about a drummer this is not a war film this isn't a horror film this isn't an action film but it's 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 more uh visceral than most of those most films in those genres though i mean more visceral than first man which is a movie about a uh, trip to the moon directed by the same person which i really liked but whiplash so you think damien chazelle has not uh, that Whiplash out of the three that he has made besides his first independent feature, that this is the best movie he's made. And he has yet to match the potential that he showed in Whiplash. I've had one of the greatest movie experiences I've ever had and then two not great movie experiences because I saw La La Land, La La Land in New York and people thought a shooting was happening. So everyone ran out, like stampeded out of the theater, like with a minute and a half left before the end credits. So seeing La La Land was the most terrifying movie experience I've ever had. And then First Man is a movie I think is a very well-made movie. And I do think it's a good film. I just got like physically sick almost from seeing IMAX. The shakiness. It just, like, and I'd never been, I'd seen Cloverfield and... I've seen a number of found footage films in a theater. Never bothered me before, but seeing First Man and uh, IMAX just like I just like I I just wanted to close my eyes and like crawl up in a ball. It just drove me nuts. But I do think it's a good film. So a little bit of a side thing, but have you heard about the the movie he's going to shoot this summer with Brad Pitt yeah. about like a silent movie star transitioning into the sound era? Yeah, basically the artist. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I thought of when I first heard it. But, you know, maybe that one's going to be really good. We have Brad Pitt all of a sudden doing all this uh, looking at Hollywood's history movies. A little bit of a tangent. But yeah. we can move on to my number nine of the last ten years. Uh, this may be on yours, and if it is, uh, say as soon as I say what it is. Inside Lewin Davis, directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen from 2013. No, I have no Cohen brothers phone. Okay. I've noticed at looking at this that I have a lot of white 
uh, American men on this list. I think there's only one non-American, but you know, I'm a myopic American film goer, so that's fine. But out of those, something like Inside Lewin Davis, directed by the Coen brothers, at least is uh, a very idiosyncratic sort of movie. So I think maybe the main reason I like it and am you know, drawn towards watching it multiple times is that the subject matter, the 1961 burgeoning folk revival, is just something that I've been interested in for a very long time, like the early start of Bob Dylan. And this is one of the few movies I can think of that it is about that era, and it is just so perfectly executed by two of the best director, American directors of like the last 25 years that, of course, this is going to be one of my favorite movies. Uh, some stuff of note about it, uh, cinematographer Bruno Delbanel. I think this is the only Coen Brothers movie he worked on. If it's not, it is one of a handful. He's a French cinematographer who worked with Jean-Pierre Jeunet on Amelie and A Very Long Engagement, which are very visually striking movies. And the look of this movie is just so perfect. It's like you just stepped inside of, like, <laughs> if uh, Don't Look Now was colorized, like, this is what it would look like. And well, then just some. Wait, uh, may I interject? It's interesting you say that because when the Coen brothers were originally conceiving the film, they actually were thinking of shooting the film in black and white, like uh, Pinnebaker or Maisel's film, uh, but they ended up not doing it. But they actually were thinking of shooting at like super low budget 16 millimeter. Uh, which would have been really cool, but the film does look gorgeous as it is. I mean, that would have made sense for the movie, and I would have liked to have seen what it, it would have looked like. That would have been maybe an even better movie. But another one of the things I just love about this, and you get this in so many different Coen Brothers movies, but this is, being one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies, a perfect example of them just getting great actors and turning them into great character actors for their movies. Adam Driver is in such a tiny role and is incredible in it. Carrie Mulligan is more than a small part, but she's really amazing in this movie. Justin Timberlake is perfectly cast as Carrie Mulligan's husband. Then Garrett Hudland has a role where he says like five words, but it's just exceptional as it's like brooding, uh, beatnik sort of just driving jazz person. And then John Gidman, the Coen Brothers staple, is amazing. It's like a jazz pretentious sax man who's strung out on heroin. Uh, Inside Lewin Davis is my number nine. I, d I don't think I've allowed you very much time to talk about it. Uh, what do you think about this movie? It's a film I remember uh, on the movies that made me podcast that Josh Olson and Joe Dante do. They said that uh, Josh Olson said whenever he sees a Coen Brothers film, if he doesn't uh, love it right away, he knows he's wrong because the Coen Brothers are like above him. And I really like the film, but it's one of theirs where after viewing it, I said, this is what I'm going to have to rewatch. I, I thought it was impeccably. I was the same you know, way. The production design and the music's wonderful, the performances, but the Coen Brothers have a way some of their films are a little off center and you're not exactly sure what to make of them. Like they're incredibly undeniably well made, but you're like, but what was the point of that, that movie? And, and, and I, I got some of that, but I also, um, it was a little enigmatic, but I absolutely think it's a, a, a very well made film. I just have not gone back to rewatch it. Uh, but it's, it's still like with the Coen Brothers, I think we've said before when we did our top of their films, it's like they're, like if you rank their movies, like their, you know, thirteenth best film is still like maybe a four and a half out of five. Like yes. they're they're being, like almost all their movies are like, you know, four stars or more out of five. 
like you, it is a movie the first time I watched it, I was sort of like iffy about it, but the second time I watched it, which was last year, it just totally blew me away, and it, I think it just will continue to grow on me. And arguably uh, Oscar Isaac's best performance to date, perfectly cast, just really funny and moving and just, you know, his own and Show off his singing voice, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I listen to the soundtrack, I have it. Um, so... I am going to go to my number eight film is a documentary uh, from 2012, uh, The Act of Killing. Have you seen this film? I have not. I vividly remember it being nominated for Best Documentary eight years ago, though. Yeah. Yeah. And it lost to 20 Feet from Stardom, which is a nice little movie. But The Act of Killing is a monumental achievement in documentary. Um, Joshua Oppenheimer convinced these real uh, people uh, in Indonesia that had been murderers and uh, the American government helped them uh, commit these atrocities back in the 60s. He gets these real men to restage their killings uh, as different film genres, like a gangster film, a musical. And it's, it's a movie where... You know how sometimes you watch a movie and go, oh, that scene, like that scene is like so powerful and it's just like that scene I'm going to remember. Like the whole movie is just full of those scenes where you're just like your jaw is on the ground for that whole movie. It's darkly, darkly funny. It's deeply disturbing and it says so so much about cinema and history and violence and it's just – it's one of the most – staggering documentaries just it it it, it really is uh, a film that's hard to shake and uh it's it's just uh, i i can't say enough amazing things about it it's just a real if 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 you're not someone that is crazy about documentaries you still should see it because it's so incredible the act of killing yeah you're much more of a documentary fan than i am so this is is this your number one documentary of the last decade yeah I will go into my number eight movie, which I think will possibly be appearing later on yours. And if it is, we will discuss it more in depth later. My number eight movie of the last 10 years is First Reformed from 2017, directed by Paul Schrader. No, it's not on my list, but it, it would oh. be very clear. Wow, here we go. So this is higher on mine than it is on yours. I think that is just a testament to you seeing more movies than me than anything else. But... On we go. It is from the writer of Taxi Driver, among other things, but that is obviously what I know him best for and what most people would. Uh, it, I think, is the best depiction of the existential crisis one would go through regarding global warming. And it's just a very harrowing, really gripping, amazing movie with an incredible performance by Ethan Hawke. It was an absolute crime that he was not nominated for Best Actor uh, the year it came out. First Reformed. And Robbie Malik. <laughs> yeah, and Robbie Malik ended up winning. First Reformed is incredible. It is like a religious experience when you're watching it. Uh, it's a movie you really can't help but be completely drawn into it when you're watching it. I like dare someone to keep looking at their phone while they're watching First Reformed. <laughs> Jonathan, what do you have to say about this movie? It was my number one film of that year. I think it's. I haven't actually seen too many films that Paul Schrader's directed, but neither have I. I mean, yeah, I've I've seen. I think important connected to this 
film, he also was the screenwriter of The Last Temptation of Christ, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, another religious film he's done. So Raging but, Bull, yeah. is that right? Yeah, yeah, and Bringing Out the Dead, those are the four he's done with Scorsese. But yeah, I just, it's it's a film that he, uh, Schrader talked about, he never thought he would make this movie because he's too enamored with sex and violence and empathy. And he made his European art house movie. It's in yes. full screen, a lot of static shots. It's like shots. a Robert Bresson it, movie. Right. He talked, to, I mean, the movie's basically Diary of a Country Priest meets Taxi Driver. I mean, really, that's... And like, yeah. there's a lot of really amazing scenes of Ethan Hawke alone in his house doing ridiculous things like drinking whiskey and mixing Pepto-Bismol with it in a shot that echoes Taxi Driver, which is also echoing a Godard movie, which is two or three things I know about her, I'm pretty sure is what that's from. But First Reform definitely Uh, is a European art house movie. And it's just a very singular, great achievement. Paul Schrader might never make another movie as good as it, but that is okay because he gave us First Reformed. Well, connecting to the previous uh, – uh, one of the previous films, he is scheduled to shoot this year a film, uh, The Card Player, with Oscar Isaac, star of Inside Lewin Davis. So, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a very, very well-directed film. It was my number one of that year. So is it time for my number seven pick? Yes, it is. Uh, my number seven pick is uh, – you know, I don't – I didn't try to just put – you know, oh, I have to have a woman on the list. But no, she deserved it. Uh, I put the film Tony Erdman from 2016 at number seven, a two hour and 42 minute German Austrian prank comedy. Uh, Marin Odd, A-D-E. I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name, but Ada. I can't even. Yeah, I can't fully explain why this movie is so brilliant and amazing. Uh, I actually showed it at uh, my college uh, last semester and I saw it twice in theaters. I saw it at the New York Film Festival first and then I showed it, uh, I saw it with my mom and brother uh, in the theater when they came to visit New York. But it's one of the few films I've seen this decade uh, where I couldn't breathe. (laughs) I was laughing so hard during some scenes. Like it is hysterically funny. But in a very uncomfortable way. Yeah, yeah, it's I it's basically about a very uptight overworked businesswoman businesswoman in her 30s and she has this laid-back goofy father who is uh He's like a retired. German hippie. Yeah, and he basically it's 2 hours and 42 minutes of him slowly pranking his daughter in different ways, dressing up in a stupid wig and fake teeth and infiltrating a business meeting she's having in public and it it the movie really does need to be as long as it is i can't explain why but it just it needs the space to breathe and i just think it's so funny and it's i remember i think it was a.o scott uh one of the main film critics said that it's one of those movies that reminds you that cinema is not dead. Like, like who, who could have like come up this, like no, no Hollywood studio would have come up with this film the way it is. They've been talking about doing an American remake yeah, and originally Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson yeah. was going to start it. Yeah. Which if they were going to do an American remake, that would be amazing casting, but I still don't want to do it. hasn't bucket lists in like 12 years or whatever. No, he did an, uh, one, uh, James L. Brooks. It's one of those films like, oh, can yeah, you yeah, ever, yeah. the morning show one, but, no, it's called like I don't know. I never saw it. it had Reese Witherspoon it had and Paul, Paul Rudd. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those titles like 
how how are you doing? Can you ever forgive me? You know, it's it's one of those titles. But anyway, uh, have you seen Tony Erdman? Yeah, I have. And it's an incredible. Yeah. It's it's one of those comedies tend to not work in your language because comedy is such a, you know, it's dependent on language and turn of phrase and stuff like that. But so much of this comedy in this movie is like physical and uh, performance driven that a lot of it is still really, really funny, even though it is in German and is over two and a half hours long or just about two and a half hours. And this is what I'm honestly surprised that uh, an American remake hasn't been made of it because you could easily see that happening. And it's it's got some really interesting stuff going on with like uh, she they're a German family, but she's working. It's in Romania or is it Greece? Something like that. Right. Just about sort of like international capitalism and everyone sort of trying to be like America and being driven business driven like Americans and, you know, not having families and not caring about the sort of stuff you should care about. And it's got some really sweet sort of stuff underneath underneath uh, all the very uncomfortable comedy. And it's probably an underseen movie. This is another one that was in Cahiers du Cinema's top 10 of uh, the last 10 years, wasn't it? Yeah, I just think that it's a movie if they do an American remake eventually, they're going to fundamentally get it wrong. They're just going to go, oh, it's an old father pranking his uptight daughter. Like, they're going to make it too jacked. There'll be an unnecessary romantic interest for the female character. There'll be something like that. They're just... (laughs) But Lisa Cholodinko, who did the Kids Are All Right and did the... um, Oliver, uh, Oliver, Oliver Kittridge miniseries. Like she's uh, doing the remake supposedly, and she's really talented. Well, I heard Kristen Wiig was maybe going to uh, be attached, and she's always in good th- in good stuff. But yeah, but uh, so if you haven't seen Tony Erdman block off uh, two hours and forty two minutes uh, to watch this German Austrian prank comedy influenced by Andy Kaufman, yeah. And uh, yeah, the being a comedy in a foreign language is sounds off putting, but it really is worth uh, putting in the time to watch this because, yeah, that was one of my honorable mentions for the top 10. My number seven, directed by Martin Scorsese from 2013, The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, I think this is, is this on your top 10? Not that Scorsese film. Okay, here we go. I think this is Scorsese's most contemporary feeling movie that he's made in a really, really long time. It's a lot of it feels like it's like a music video or something like that. It is so like just filled with contagious energy that at three hours, like a good hour and a half of it, you're like, holy shit, this is only this is an hour and a half. I feel like this was like 20 minutes because it just keeps going and building and building for such a long time. I think this is probably DiCaprio's best performance. He just is so good as a total scumbag (laughs) asshole that I wish he would do it more often. Um, and this, out of all of their pairings together, I think this is their best pairing, The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, although I really do love The Aviator. That's not exactly like memorable as a DiCaprio performance in the same way Wolf of Wall Street is. Not to discount from his performance in that movie, because I do love The Aviator. But The Wolf of Wall Street just is something totally different. And it's such a, it's one of the great sort of indictments of that version of capitalism that we, we see in Wall Street stockbrokers. It's just amazing. Like the first 20 minutes of the movie with uh, uh, Matthew McConaughey as sort of like the person who inspires uh, Jordan Belfort, DiCaprio's character, to be the most con- just asshole version of the asshole he could possibly be 
is an amazing performance that came right in the midst of McConaughey's really great run. I think he made True Detective right after this. Um, the Wolf of Wall Street. You said it is not the Scorsese movie on this one, but you have to think it's a great Scorsese movie, right? Yeah, I think that it's up there as one of his best films of the century. Uh, I also agree. I'm not a huge fan of Leonardo DiCaprio. I don't think he's one of the best actors of his generation. I think he's given wonderful performances. Um, I really like Revolutionary He's a huge movie star. Yeah, I think he's a better movie star than he is an actor. I always think of... I mean, there are people like Cary Grant, Spencer Tracy that were always basically playing themselves. But Leonardo DiCaprio, I always kind of see the sweat. Like, I always see him like, I'm acting and I'm a movie star who's giving a performance. Um, And it worked really well in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because that's what he's doing in the Mm. film. He's an actor who... Loves an uh, accent. But anyway... Yeah, The Wolf of Wall Street, he totally miscast in J. Edgar. That's like one of the <laughs> most miscast, you know. But uh, anyway, Wolf of Wall Street, saw it in a the theater on my birthday, Christmas Day, with, with my mom. Uh, and it is just, it, I was mentioning um, a little bit ago off mic that talking about uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. This is an old man making a movie seeming like he's 30 years old. Yes. Like this movie is so alive and so vital and urgent. It's a period piece, but it says so much about, you know, this uh, this decade. It's well, just about America so at any given reading. time in America's history, really. Yeah. And it's interesting that it came out right, you know, right before Trump, you know, ran and became president. You know, so it's a prescient film, but yeah, it's uh, the movie is. I won't say it's too long, because, but it it needs to be too long. It needs to be overindulgent. Like the, well, yeah. the, the last like, hour, you have to feel like you're well, coming well, down from a really, really long <laughs> binge. Like this movie wouldn't be like the movie wouldn't be the same if it was two hours and thirteen minutes. Mm-hmm. No, not at you know, all. It had to be. It, it, yeah. But uh, anyway, yeah, The Wolf of Wall Street. Well, uh, was this the first very... movie you saw Margot Robbie in? This was definitely for me. I think it would have to be. I don't know. She she might have been popped About up in something you don't even remember. The Richard she... Curtis movie came no. out the same year. Uh, I didn't see that. but um... <laughs> Great Jonah Hill. Do you think this is one of Jonah Hill's best supporting parts? Yeah. I mean, it's crazy that he's been nominated for two Oscars and like Steve Buscemi. and jeff daniels and others have never been nominated but yeah no he's really good in the film and i think that um it's such a so many different people in it jean dujardin and rob reiner and matthew mcconaughey and uh yeah the um the guy from friday night lights uh kyle chandler and (laughs) yes uh yeah so many so many people pop up in it uh but yeah uh, definitely worth seeing not necessarily with your mom but i'm weird i see stuff like that with my mom (laughs) We sat in different parts of the theater, though. Um, <laughs> okay, my number six, my number six film is a South Korean film from 2010, which I don't think you've seen. Uh, you did see? Uh, did you? Well, did you see the film Burning that came out a few uh, years ago? Uh, not the whole thing, unfortunately. Oh, shame on you. Okay, but his film Poetry is uh, a beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful, moving deeply humane movies that uh, I've seen from the previous decade. It's uh, Burning was his first film uh, uh, since uh, Poetry, so he had a big gap between those two movies. Malik-esque gap there. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, poetry is uh, just it, one, one best screenplay it can. It's about an elderly woman who starts taking a poetry class. I don't want to give too too much away about the plot, even though it's not really a plot-driven film, but I just thought it was so beautiful and moving, and it's one of those movies that just reminds you that cinema can be so profound and you know really you know add to your life it's just such a a wonderful you know little movie uh yeah poetry see this is exactly why we need to do both of us because i'm all these american films we have to have some foreign movies in there i'm glad you're bringing that in the documentaries to give some variation because i am going again with another white american director making a hollywood movie my number six is we probably won't get into it too much in this discussion right now because we have talked about it before on this podcast and we'll do it again when we talk about our best movies of last year. My number six is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, directed by Quentin Tarantino from 2019. Uh, I've seen this movie, I think, four times since uh, I saw it the first time in theaters this past August. Uh, It blew me away the first time I saw it in a movie theater. The last half hour of it, I think, was one of my great experiences being in a movie theater for a really long time and every time i've watched it since then i have enjoyed it more and more this movie is going to age very very well for me right now it is my second favorite tarantino movie behind inglorious bastards but i would not be shocked if in a few years it became my favorite movie he's made and i really really hope his next movie is not his last one like he said is going to be the case for the longest time now I yeah I I I still think Pulp Fiction's by far the best yeah. thing he's ever done. But uh, Hollywood's just such a lovingly, uh, you know, loving recreation of that time period. It's funny. It's shocking. It's full of great performances. What's so I mean, different than Pulp Pitt. Fiction? Pulp Fiction is very much more of a young man's sort of movie. This one is Tarantino. Middle age. Yeah, middle age on the other side of his life. I think time is has aged Tarantino really well. I, he couldn't have made a movie like this in the 90s. Who would have been too snarky and know-it-all? And Pulp Fiction, which I really love at times, is a sort of like look-at-me kind of movie, which this one is not. And I can't deny the the brilliance of Pulp Fiction, but I can say that I, I enjoy this movie more. Well, I think that... I think most of his movies are too long. Yes. And, uh, I, 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 you know, this movie, I haven't seen the extended cut, which and he keeps on. <laughs> I have seen a lot of the deleted cut. scenes. I'm really glad that they didn't make the final cut. It, it, it shouldn't yeah. be any longer than it is. I kind of, I love Tarantino, but I think sometimes he, like, he has this giant, massive novel of a film and he's like, Oh my, I can't, you know, not have this in here. It's like, I, like it would be amazing if his last movie was like a hundred minutes. Yeah, like, like I, the same no way as Reservoir Dogs bookended. Yeah, yeah. Like he, yeah. Hateful Eight is just way too long. But yeah, yeah and that's what I sort mean, of I, surprised me that I like this one so much because I think we both share the opinion that Hateful Eight is Tarantino giving all of his worst sort of tendencies like as much attention as he possibly could. It's overwritten. It's too long. It's just way too into itself. And there's no reason for it to be shot in 70 millimeters, but he did it for whatever reason. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's uh, high on my list of favorite films of last year. Um, but going to my number five is my number one film of 2019 uh, is The Irishman. That's my number five film of the previous decade. 
Um, I think it's Scorsese's best film of this century. I think it's a masterpiece. Uh, I, I guess I won't rant about it too much because we've talked about it before reviewing it, and we're going to do our top ten of the decade uh, of the 2019. But yeah, The Irishman. Uh, I saw it literal front row seat at the New York Film Festival. Uh, didn't get up to go to the bathroom. Uh, sat through the whole film through the end credits. And the more I think about it, the more I hear people discuss it. It's just it just rises in my estimation day by day. I just think it's a real achievement and it provides the entertainment that films like Goodfellas and Casino do, but it's deeper than those movies in some ways. It's uh, more Catholic. It's more, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I just, yeah, I'll talk about it more in our top 10 of 2019. But One think- thing to ask you is have you seen it on Netflix at all since it's been released on that format? No, it's almost like I don't want to, but I, I do. I do want to go back. It, it's actually come back to. Well, this is one thing. If it wins, I don't think it's going to win Best Picture. I don't think it's going to play in any Regal or AMC theaters, any multiplexes. No, it, it makes me sad. Like, even if it wins Best Picture, which, yeah. So, but you know, for, for me, I've watched it like even parts of it so many different times on Netflix. Maybe that's something you should just try because, like, even just watching like the first ten minutes of it, I like gives me great joy that Scorsese made such an amazing movie so late in his career and that he's going to make even more. I just love it. I'm a massive Uh, Scorsese (laughs) apologist. I think he's the best currently living American filmmaker. Yeah. I just want to say that I, um, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street is such a young man's film, even though he was like 73 when he made it or something. And this is an old man's movie. Mm -hmm. And that's not at all a criticism of the film. It's just, this is, a film that definitely he could not have made, I don't think, any earlier. Uh, or he certainly could have made it, you know, in the 80s or 90s. No, and, like, if you were to do a double feature of Mean Streets and then this one, it would be very interesting to see how he has evolved. Because this, I mean, it's literally 50 years afterwards, and it sort of, like, takes place in a similar time period. And it's about boots on the ground, uh, crime life in Italian neighborhoods. So would make an interesting double feature. Yeah, take block off half your day. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. My number five movie of the last 10 years is from 2017, Call Me By Your Name, directed by Luca Guadagnino. Uh, This movie feels like a really amazing novel written by James Ivory, one half of the Merchant Ivory uh, power duo of the 80s and 90s, who, if you love uh, British adaptations of uh, historical novels, you love Merchant Ivory movies. And Luca Guadagnino, who is mostly known for splashy, really, like, not, I wouldn't say showy, but very different sort of movies than Call Me By Your Name. Like, uh, what's the one he did with Tilda Swinton where she plays a rock star that is escaping me right now? A Bigger Splash. Bigger Splash, yeah. And Suspiria, which came out last year. Call Me By Your Name is so different to that. It feels like a James Ivory movie. And it's amazing of Guadagnino being a versatile of a director as he is to have made a movie like this. But more than anything, what sticks out in this movie are Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer, who give two of my favorite performances of the last 10 years. And it is a coming-of-age story about people discovering you know, their sexuality, but even if you're not a gay person, this can really touch you on a deep level as a film just about someone growing up and discovering who they are. Call Me By Your Name is such a beautiful, understated incredible movie but it's also very watchable i've watched it like four or five times since it came out this is one of those movies where i came into it 
not at the very start of the movie. Like, I think looking back, I only missed like the first 30 seconds, but that sort of made it better because I felt like I was just coming into like somebody's life and seeing it unfold for the next two hours because it is just such a beautiful, realistic movie. Uh, I'm guessing this is not in your top 10, but I think you probably like this movie. Maybe not as much yeah. as I do, but Call Me By Your Name yeah. is just so good. Yeah. Um, I will I, I will discuss it for a second, and then it kind of goes into my film. Uh, that's my next film. Yeah, I saw this film uh, a little bit before it came out in theaters at the Museum of Modern Art. It's one of those movies for the first half of it. I was like, this is really beautiful. It's well-acted. Yeah, it's a good movie. And then the second half, especially when it gets to the finale, it just punched me in the heart. And I was like quivering. My lip was quivering. One of the great so- final shots of um, oh, any movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when people like I like there were a few people that are like getting up and leaving because the end credit. I was like, what the fuck are you doing getting up? Like this is, you know, so yeah, it's. Army Hammer, I always thought was, um, you know, kind of looked like a big Ken doll. Like he's he's one of those people that's so attractive that he is just like bland. But in this movie, I was like, oh, okay, I get his hotness. Like this movie, I understand it. Uh, and they're 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 kind of an odd couple because they're so different, the age difference, and they, uh, but they're they're so beautiful together in the movie. Yeah, I, I think There's it's like a hundred pound weight difference between the two because Chalamet is such a yeah. frail person. <laughs> Yeah, but you can imagine him like picking him up and throwing him across the room. But uh, yeah, I <laughs> well, just this, think... I, this might have been the first. I guess he's in Interstellar, Timothy Chalamet. But this was definitely the first movie where he really stood out as an actor for me. I think he's like one of the great young actors working right now. I mean, what do you think of Chalamet? Yeah, he's going to play a, a Bob Dylan yeah. uh, next, suppose. Um, yeah, he's you know wonderful in Lady Bird and. Um, I didn't think Beautiful Boy was a great film, but he's good in the movie. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, I'm going to go to my number four pick, which is a queer film. Um, I chose the three-hour French NC-17 rated lesbian film, Blue is the Warmest Color. Um, this is another of one of the best movie experiences I ever had. I saw it at a small art theater in North Carolina after the semester ended, and the the year it came out, it was the same year as Gravity, and I tell people the way Gravity was like a visceral thrill ride of a movie, Blue is the Warmest Color was like that on an emotional level. It was an emotional roller coaster. Like I just kind of staggered out of the movie theater. It's so moving and romantic and heartbreaking, and you just you feel. I remember when Spielberg was the head of the jury at Cannes that year. He talked about it was a privilege to watch this film and to see that romance and to see that love blossom. And it's just the performance. It's like, I don't even want to say the word performances. They just are there. They're so real. Um, yeah. I just think the movies, yeah, I actually walked out of the movie theater. I said, I staggered out that I actually went into the women's restroom afterwards. It was one of those, you lock the door behind you and afterwards I came out and I saw that next to the women written it had a picture of Marlena Dietrich and I was like I had I was so like engrossed in the movie that I thought had become a lesbian I guess (laughs) yeah the two lead actresses Leia Seydoux who has been in a decent amount of stuff American audience would have seen she was in Spectre the James Bond movie and also went in Inglorious Bastards and then Adele Exarchopoulos 
who hasn't been in too much since this. But yeah, the two lead performances are amazing. And I remember when it got the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, I, I think they gave the two actresses like a share of it, like as uh, the same as the director did. And very different than you, which you saw this movie in the theater. I watched this movie on Netflix on my laptop while I was in bed. And it was a very different sort of experience. And I think, no. And I think I would have liked it much more if I had seen it in a movie theater because it did not, I don't know, I didn't love it uh, when I saw it. And (laughs) there is a very extended graphic sequence in it that made me slightly uncomfortable. And maybe if I was in a theater, it would have made me even more uncomfortable. But I haven't actually seen it since I saw it that first time. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, it, it, it had a really profound effect on me. I just thought it was, I, I don't know, it, it, it's just such, it's one of the, to me, it's one, one of the, the best uh, love stories ever in film. It's one of the best romantic films ever, and it just feels so real, and, you know, you're, the, it's it's not even, there's no plot, really. It's just life is no. happening. You're just watching. No, there is definitely no plot to this movie. It is, well, I mean, I might have made it sound like I didn't like it. It's a really incredible movie, and I probably should watch it again. It's one that I've thought um, about. Criterion keeps doing these uh, sales, and that's what I've always thought about buying on Blu-ray. Uh, because for some reason it costs uh, less than the other Criterion movies. Right. Um, I was going to mention that the director of the film gotten you know some kind of yes. Me Too hot water because supposedly he kind of really pushed his actresses and made them uncomfortable. Yes. And you know he has this two-part film that neither of them have been released in the U.S. and the most recent one premiered at the 2019 Cannes Film Festival and it's like three three and a half hours and they say that it's like like one of the worst art house movies ever because it mm-hmm. legitimately like the Mech entire tube, movie my love. is yeah it's basically like the entire three and a half hours is people dancing in a nightclub and they say that like literally literally like half of the movie is shot of butts jiggling <laughs> like it's just like you're following around people's butts in a club this, and they that's say the only movie he's made since blue's warmest color i'm saying the two films yeah and and it, and they say there's like this like eight minute graphic oral sex scene that he like pressured the actors into doing so putting the artist aside i think blue is the warmest color is one of the best queer films and one of the best romantic films ever in film history and i don't have a problem like okay i yeah maybe he was you know pushing people behind the scenes but i don't have a problem with a straight white guy directing a queer film because i think it's one of the best ever mm-hmm. so it's it's a uh, it's it, another one like with the wolf of wall street might not want to watch it with your mom. No, yes. My number four movie of the last 10 years is one that has been mentioned previously in this episode. And I, and we have talked, I mean, the uh, vitriol of which it is held by my co-host is very well known. But I'm a defender of this movie until the end. My number four movie of the last 10 years is La La Land, directed by Damien Chazelle from 2016. It is the best movie, best movie musical since My Fair Lady, almost 50, or more than 50 years before that, Damien Chazelle confirms himself as one of the best young directors in Hollywood after making Whiplash two years prior. Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone 
give amazing performances in which they do their own singing and dancing, which was a major criticism for a lot of the snobbish musical theater people of the world who said this this movie wasn't good because Emma Stone couldn't dance and she couldn't hit the high notes. Jonathan, I'm sure, will say it wasn't good for many other reasons besides Emma Stone not being able to hit the high notes. But I thought that her singing was fantastic regardless. And it is a beautiful tribute to the movie musicals of Jacques Demy and the Arthur Freed MGM musicals of the 1950s. And it's it was such an amazing update of the spirit and the look of those movies. La La Land, one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. Don't tear it down too much, Jonathan. It's not that bad. <laughs> I, I have friends that love the movie, and I also think it's one of the films that generally critics really loved it, but a lot of audiences were like, and it's not like some like weird art house movie. Like you understand why the general public doesn't like it, but a lot of the general public, I've heard many, many people scratch their heads and say, yeah, I didn't like this movie or like it was okay. But like one of the top three films of the year, what? Yeah. I, I think the, the film is beautiful to look at you know, the choreography and the production design and the costumes. But I just think it's an empty movie. I just, the, the main problem I had with it is that I had no emotional connection to it. I just thought it was all surface and the, it just didn't connect to me at, at all emotionally. And I just felt like it was this big, beautiful recreation that didn't have any heart to it. And I'm not, I'm not saying that the filmmakers, the actors and Damien Chazelle, that they weren't sincere. I think it's a very sincere film. I just, it just it I, I did not at all emotionally connect to the movie, and that's the major criticism to me. So this is just it's a part- difference of opinion that will never be rectified. Simply listening to the soundtrack of this movie, it makes me emotional in ways most movies could never do. So we will just leave it at La La Land being my number four, and Jonathan disagreeing with that. But recognizing Davy and Chazelle as a master filmmaker by putting Whiplash into his top ten. Yeah, and I'll say that one of the best things about the film is that I think the ending's very good. Yes, I, I do like outstanding. the ending. Yeah. Um, okay, my number three pick is like completely different from La La Land. It's Under the Skin, the 2013 uh, sci-fi horror film by Jonathan Glazer. <laughs> Pretty. Well, I know, gorgeous. I have a place about 30 minutes away. Come to me. He's only done three films in two decades. He directed Sexy Beast and then did Birth. And, and uh, then he did Under the Skin, which is very loosely based on a novel. And he took many, many years to get the film made. And he really kind of, you know, took away, took away, took away from the novel and, be- you know, boiled it down to its bare, uh, you know, theme. Very you know, minimalist like they- movie. Right. And uh, when people, I, okay, I like a number of Christopher Nolan's films, but when people say he's like the new Stanley Kubrick, I'm like, uh, yeah, no. But honestly, when people say that under the skin, like it, it actually does deserve to be mentioned in the same sentence as Kubrick to me. Like, I really do think that it is 
uh, a masterpiece. And I, I don't think every movie in my top 10 is necessarily, I'd use the word masterpiece, but Under the Skin is truly a brilliant film. And it's one that the first time I saw it, uh, I saw it twice in the theater and I've seen it once at home. I really appreciated the movie, but I was kind of scratching my head and like, it was kind of slow. I don't really know what to make of it. Very slow. Uh, it definitely, yeah, it definitely helps to have repeated viewings. And, you know, Scarlett Johansson had never been nominated for an Oscar until recently. She got two Oscar nominations. I think Under her skin, Under the Skin is one of her best performances, and it really shows that she's someone that d- doesn't mind taking challenging, uh, weird movies. Well, and, and sort of uses does her not have really uh, beautiful sort of superstar new Marilyn Monroe persona and uses it in a very interesting way where she's like a like a man catcher essentially for a decent amount of the movie and for a lot of like the first half of the movie a lot of the people appearing in it i didn't even realize this when i first saw it were unaware that they were being filmed it was just like a dashboard cam that scarlett johansson was driving around scotland and just picking up men right yeah it's it's odd that a movie that's so like stylized and perfectly directed and shot that there's these uh, scenes in it where she actually was driving around in the van and picked up guys and had conversations with them. She didn't, you know, get people sucked into a void without, the, you know, the, they, <laughs> they probably signed a contract for that. But yeah, yeah, I think that it's it's a challenging movie. It's yes. one it's it's one of those movies where I say if you watch ten minutes into it and you're like. I don't understand what's happening. This is boring. And you like look at your phone. You're not going to like the movie. Mm-hmm. You got to turn off all the lights, you know, watch it in one sitting. And like, you have to lean into the movie, the, uh, the dialogue, you have to get uh, on its wavelength. Yeah. Yeah. You have to go along with the movie and like, you might not like it, yes. but I think it's one of the best sci-fi films of the decade. And it's just mesmerizing. When it doesn't and- tell you what it's about in any way at all. It sort of like reveals itself to you as the movie unfolds. Right, but yeah, I, I give a warning thing. to anyone before you like go recommending it. It has one of the more upsetting scenes that I've ever witnessed in a movie. I'll go ahead and spoil what happens in it. Where yes, a couple is washed away and drowned as a crying baby stays on shore and is just ignored by a passing man and left there. Uh, it made me so upset when I saw it. Yeah, I did. You see it in the theater? No, I watched it at at home. It was a Netflix yeah. DVD uh, movie for me, even though it is streaming on Netflix for anyone who is interested. Okay, yeah, it's uh, yeah, I think it's one of the films this decade that truly deserves to be called a masterpiece. And I saw in an interview with Steven Soderbergh, and I agree with this. If this movie had come out in the seventies, people would have been talk would have talked about it and said it was a masterpiece, and it would have been part of, you know, not like everyone would have seen it like star yes. Wars, but it would have been a part of it the would have been a part of the culture in a way that it was not in this decade. No, I definitely agree. It's like with this, that. It came out and made like no money at the box office. It got mostly really great reviews. A lot of critics thought it was one of the best films of the year, well, but I think now it's yeah. getting more attention than maybe it even did the year it was released because it's popping up on so many people's best of the decade list that hopefully it will have a second life and it being on Netflix and readily available will become more seen uh, in the coming year yeah and i don't know that i th- maybe i shouldn't say this but uh and i'm gay but i tell guys you know to trick them into seeing it you do get to see scratcher hansen naked in it so that's a plus for some people it's true. But, but seriously she is you know i think it's one of her best performances oh definitely and leads us to my number three movie of the last 10 years uh 
it's very British movie. Uh, it is an adaptation, which are probably two reasons why I like it. This is where the best and uh, my favorite is blurring a little bit. But I know that other people really like this. I know, for example, uh, Adam McKay, the director of Vice, thinks this is one of the best movies of the last year. It's not as if that is uh, the highest company to be holding along with. But it is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, directed by Thomas Alfredson from 2011. There is a mole right at the top of British intelligence. He's been there for years. For 25 years, we've been the only thing standing between Moscow and the Third World War. I'm retired. You're outside the family. You're well placed to look into this press now. I'll do my utmost. I know that it is one of these men. All I want from you is one code name. Tinker. Taylor. Soldier. I need you to do something. Going to have to send you up into the lion's den if you're caught. What the hell are you doing up here? You can't mention me. I think this is the best British film of this century and is probably the best spy film ever made. It is just such a perfect adaptation of a John le Carre masterpiece of a spy novel. And it just so beautifully deals with the different plot threads that all converge at the end of the movie. I don't want to, like, spoil anything from it, but it's absolute all-star cast, including uh, Gary Oldman, who was nominated for an Oscar for his role as Smiley, a British criminal mastermind, or not criminal mastermind, a spy mastermind at the head of uh, Britain's MI5 intelligence service. Uh, John Hurt, and what has to be one of his last film roles, Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, just you could keep going on Colin Firth, so many different people, Tom Hardy. Uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is a movie I've seen like 10 times since it was released. I know you're not someone who rewatches movies very often, but I do it a decent amount. And this might be the movie I've seen the most from the last 10 years. I just every time I watch it, I see something new that I didn't notice before. And it is such a rewarding, rewatchable movie experience. And I really loved it the first time I saw it. And each time I watch it, I like it more and more. Um, I mean, do you regard this in the same sort of opinion that I do, or is it just like a fine spy movie for you? I saw it once in the theater, and I thought it was very well done. Confusing, yeah. but well, that's not a criticism. Like, I love David Lynch, you know, and stuff like that. And so, I like, if I can't paste together every plot thread, it's like, I don't care. It's just uh, the main thing that I remind, uh, stuck in my head is Gary Oldman's just yes. amazing in the lead. His first Oscar nomination ever, which was kind of crazy. Yeah. That it never very been crazy. And then he wins for Darkest Hour a couple years later which definitely yeah. is not a better performance than Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, but because he's playing a historical figure, Winston Churchill, of course he's going to win for that one. I just remember the film being so beautifully shot and just like tactile and just like such a rich, like period piece film. And it's just so, it is a period piece, right? Mm-hmm. Set in the 60s, 70s. At the height of the Cold right, War. Yeah, it's I... like a the height of the tension between British master spies and Russian master spies. It just puts any James Bond movie to absolute shame when it comes to like depicting spycraft and stuff like that. Obviously, not the same sort of globe trotting. Yeah. yeah, like it's not it's not a James Bond movie and it is not appealing to the same audience. But I love this movie so much and I could not recommend it higher. Have you seen his film Let the Right One In, a Swedish vampire film? Yes. Which is from the previous decade and is one of like the better horror movies 
I've seen, and I'm not exactly a horror expert, but there's yeah, just some um, really standout scenes in that movie. And then he was like, ha- did the snowman, which had like the most amazing lineup of talent. Scorsese was producing it in the cast, but they, he said that he only got to shoot like 80% of the film and it got like, I think that was one where something really went r- wrong behind the scenes, mm-hmm. but it's sad. He hasn't made a film like a good film since then. It's been over a decade. Mm-hmm. since Tinker Taylor or, or it came out early in the decade didn't it 2011 yeah yeah the snowman was one yeah. I, I like I was really excited to see it I love this movie so much and then it got absolutely roasted and I just never ended up seeing it it's apparently one like the worst movies ever made yeah um so my number two pick I'm almost certain is on your list we can talk about it together is Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life from 2011 i assume that's on your list that is my number one my list so let's go ahead and do my number two which is the social network directed by david fincher from 2010 this is a movie that gets more urgent and prescient by the year i the first time i saw it in a movie theater in 2010 i was totally blown away from it i thought that it was the citizen kane for the 21st century my thoughts about that have not changed now It is so perfectly well made. Aaron Sorkin wrote the screenplay, and it's like his best movie screenplay, maybe since A Few Good Men, and directed by David Fincher. They make such a perfect pair together for this movie. Sort of the same thing was attempted with the Steve Jobs movie, where you pair Aaron Sorkin with like a visionary, uh, you know, a visionary visual filmmaker like David Fincher or, uh, uh, shit, I can't think of the guy's name who did Steve Jobs. Give it to me. Danny Boyle. Danny Boyle, there you go. But yes, I love this movie from the moment I saw it. I love this movie before I saw it because it probably has the best movie trailer that I've ever seen where it's just like shots of people's Facebook pages over like a child choir singing Creep by Radiohead and just gave off such a perfect David Fincher vibe that I was like, this is going to be unbelievable. I want you to something substantial in order to get the attention of the clubs. Why? Because they're exclusive and fun and they lead to a better life. People want to go on the internet and check out their friends, so why not build a website that offers that friends, pictures, profiles. I'm talking about taking the entire social experience of college and putting it online. The site got 2,200 hits within two hours? Thousand. 22,000. This idea is potentially worth millions of dollars. Millions? You stole our website. They're saying we stole the Facebook. I know what it said. So did we? A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion dollars. You're going to get left behind. It's moving faster when than any of us ever imagined get left it would behind. Let's sue him in federal court. I can't wait to stand over your shoulder and watch you write as a check. If you guys were the inventors of Facebook, Invented Facebook. Is there anything that you need to tell me? Your actions could have permanently destroyed everything I've been working on. We have been working on. Do you like being a joke? Do you want to go back to that? Mark! This is our time. You're being accused of intentionally breaching security, violating copyrights, violating individual privacy. Your best friend is suing you for $600 million. As for the charges... I believe I deserve some recognition from this board. Uh, I'm sorry? Yes. I don't understand. Which part? 
and then I saw the reviews come out before I ended up watching the movie, and the reviews were like, this movie is amazing. My expectations for it could not have been higher, and when I saw it, I wanted to love it, and I loved it. And I like as soon as it came out on DVD, I got the DVD and watched all of the director's commentary and the behind the scenes stuff. I bought the book that it is based on. I just became like obsessed with this movie. And even today, I'm not quite the same level of of obsession as I was in 2010. But I still think it is one of the great movies of the last decade. I'm thinking that this is not your number one. <laughs> no, but I think it's. Uh... It's one of David Fincher's best films. I think Zodiac is his masterpiece, but I think uh, Social Network is... You want to talk about pairing of a director and a screenwriter. You know, Fincher directs the hell out of Sorkin's screenplay, and Sorkin sometimes can be... um, You know, we don't mind films where characters don't really talk like real people. It's heightened, but uh, sometimes his films can be a little little bit annoying and uh, they can ring false... This, know it all yeah yeah and I, I think we should mention the performances uh J- yes. J- jesse eisenberg is amazing and uh i think andrew garfield gives one yes. of his best i still have faith in andrew garfield because of this movie when i saw it i was like this guy is going to be a star he's going to be one of the great actors and he's had great performances like silence he's incredible on in that but he was in spider-man he has not quite lived up to the potential he that he shared the social network what was yeah. that um I, I said Spider-Man kind of derailed his career because of stupid yeah. comic books. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a film that... it, it the, It's weird. I compare it to His Girl Friday because it's yeah. just one of those films where it's just... It's one of the best directed... It's one of the... It's a very talky film. Mm-hmm. But... And, it, it, oh, it's... It, it, but... It's so brilliantly directed, uh, uh, people talking a lot. You mm-hmm. know, it, it's up there as one of the best movies and it's also um they're talking about stuff you don't really know what they're talking about but it's fascinating and engrossing you don't always you know, like either talking about algorithms and you know internet stuff and legal yeah, stuff a lot writing of legal code jargon. on windows and stuff like that having no idea what the code is meant to be right it's one of those where you couldn't after the film like like understand everything they're talking about but it's so brilliantly scripted uh, and delivered by the performers that you know, even if you don't actually understand what they're saying, the the urgency of it and their 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 you know you believe that they know what they're talking about, mm-hmm. and it's just so well done. So your number one to me, honestly, the number one film of the decade is Mad Max Fury Road, uh, George Miller's 2015 action film. Our world is fire and blood. Everything is dependent on oil. You're killing for gasoline. The world is almost out of water. 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 Now there's the water wars. Here they come again. Everybody's gone out of their mind. Out here, everything hurts. You want to get through this? Do as I say. Now 
pick up what you can and run. I was so excited for this movie because I love the Mad Max films. I think the Road Warrior is still the best in the series, but the Road Warrior is like top 10, top five action films of all time. And I was, when the trailer came out, I was like, this looks insane, insane. And then I was like crossing my fingers that it would get good reviews and then it got amazing reviews it was critically the best reviewed film of that year kind of out of nowhere because people were sort of expecting this to be a bomb yeah partially because it had a really troubled production they had been trying to make a new mad max film for years and there have been numerous things that weather problems and financial problems and they shot this film for seven months in the African desert, and over 80% of it was done with real cars, real stunts. There's definitely CG work in the film. There's definitely wires erased. There's definitely color changes. But a lot of it's done old school, and it is unbelievable. And it's unlike it's just, anything else. It uh, really is. Yeah, I remember uh, Bill Hader was in an interview once and he talked about the uh, Trey Parker from South Park, how much he loved the movie. And Parker uh, said, the third time I see it, I'm wearing a suit. Like, it's like I have such reverence for this movie. It's just so, like, you, you can't, but I remember too, Steven Soderbergh said in an interview that he, like, watches that movie and he, like, he's like, I literally don't know how he made that movie. And it's my job to know like i'm a director and he's like i can't even fathom how he made that movie it's just i mean i could ramble about it forever but it's just i mean it's pure cinema it's basically right at two hours it's a two-hour car chase in the desert Mm -hmm. and (laughs) well they go one place and they come back (laughs) yeah and it, it there's not a ton of dialogue in it but it it has it's and it's not just i mean it is just amazing action but there are deeper themes about uh you know, women and about the environment. Who killed the world? Yeah, it, it's just in the movie's insane in the best way, and it's the only movie I've ever seen where I went to see it opening night, and I I got a ton of people to go, and my mom had had her knee replaced, like, and gotten out of the hospital like two days before, and I, I said, "You have to go to this." So she came in with a walker and sat, and after it was over, I walked out and bought a ticket and saw it two times in a row. I saw it five, a total of five <laughs> times in the theater. And I've only seen two films three times in the theater, Talladega Nights and Inglorious Bastards. But I saw it five times in the theater. It is, I, I, I yeah, it, it, I, I legitimately think it's the best film of the decade and it's an action masterpiece and I can't, yeah, I, I'll stop. Well, cinematographer John Seal came out of retirement to shoot this movie. He had previously done The Rum Diary in 2011, was his last one before this. So good way for him to go on top. A cinematographer who was nominated for an Academy Award for Witness and Rain Man and one for The English Patient. 
This is definitely one of like the most incredibly photographed movies of the last ten years, maybe if not like this century or since cinema or since cinema was invented by uh, whoever the hell did it in the eighteen hundreds. Uh, George James and Lumiere brothers. The, hell did it? the brothers oh, yeah. who did the factory. This is what they invented it for, so we could see Mad Max in a movie theater in twenty fifteen. Absolutely, yeah, no. <laughs> It really and I, is and I want... something else, and like it, no other. It's it's tough to even consider this an action movie because it's so much more than that. It's like a wholly engrossing nightmare, but like a fun nightmare of a movie. Yeah, I I, I have a family friend who is just like one of the greatest people to uh, see a film with, and he was there at the first screening with me. And a few times during the movie, he just said this is just my fantasy. This is just my <laughs> fantasy. Like, like it's just, uh, and, I, and I don't have to say, I, I crap on comic book films and, and I don't see a lot of the franchise movies. I've never seen a fast and furious film. I haven't seen the newest star Wars movie. I've only seen five of the 20 something MCU films. I'm the one that's constantly complaining about action movies and franchise movies and all these dumb sequels and remakes but Mad Max Fury Road is the shining example, like on the pedestal of like those films can be a great work of art. They're usually not. They're usually not very good at all. But it is just a shining example of that. If you have a director like George Miller and you give him the resources and the creative freedom to do what he wants to do, you can make a masterpiece that is an action film that's a sequel slash remake that is you know a third film in a series that hadn't been uh since 30 years since the last one Mm -hmm. so it ended up costing 180 million dollars for the studio yeah i mean it's i just like i love going online and seeing the behind the scenes footage of like how much was real like i mean it's hard to emphasize how much that like tom hardy and Charlize theron based on their experience with the production thought that this movie was not going to be good and when they saw the final product for like wow that is not what we thought was going to happen yeah, I mean, will you would you say that Mad Max is better than any of the comic book films in the decade? I mean, uh, yes, definitely. The only one that would even like approach it is The Dark Knight, and Mad that Max Fury Road blows that, that out of the water. And that, and that was the that wasn't even in that decade. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like, The Dark Knight Rises might be even like the closest one. It's I mean, Avengers Endgame. I mean, all of those just the stakes don't even seem real. Mad Max Fury Road brings. It's such a visceral, even though it's like in this nonsense, or not nonsense, because some the stuff that happens in that movie very well could be our future, but in yeah. something that's not like, you know, our present reality, it really puts you at such a visceral level into this different world that no, no comic book movie could ever achieve that, anything like that. So to transition from what is a very fun, popping Friends. Mad Max Fury movie to maybe the most pretentious movie ever made. But its pretentiousness achieves level of art that is unmatched by almost any other movie. I'm referring to Jonathan's number two movie of the last decade and mine number one, The Tree of Life, directed by Terrence Malick from 2011. There are two ways through life. The way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. Where are they be grown before that tree is tall. It takes fierce will to get ahead in this world. 
Come on, hit me. Hit me. Come on, son. He's afraid of you. You expect things that a mulling adult can accomplish. I've just always wanted you to be strong. Be your own man. sound as pretentious as the movie is by saying that the tree of life is the apotheosis of cinema as art and is 139 minutes of cinematic poetry it is absolutely perfect the first 20 30 minutes of this movie i think is some of the most amazing filmmaking that i've ever seen in my entire life the tree of life (laughs) the way that mad max fury road gives you hope for cinema the tree of life does that for me because for me, this is all that movies can be. And it just this is not something that could be achieved in any other medium. Terrence Malick is one of the great visual poets that has ever lived in Tree of Life. It's hard to say this is his best movie because I love The Thin Red Line so much. But I'm just so thankful that Terrence Malick has given us The Tree of Life and The Thin Red Line. And here's hoping that he continues to make movies like that into the future. What was your experience of seeing it? How many times? I assume you saw it in a theater, right? I saw it three times in theaters. I'm someone, I saw uh, The Thin Red Line at a very young age, probably earlier than I should have. Terrence Malick implanted himself in my brain at a very early age. So Tree of Life was a movie that I was anticipating and waiting for and watching and rewatching the trailer the same way most people would approach Marvel movies. (laughs) So I have a very unique experience with this movie. I saw it three times in theaters and, you know, each time I saw it, I was more blown away than I was the last time I saw it. It is just such an amazing movie. I've seen it like, I don't, I countless times. Probably not as many times as Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, but uh, I just, this is not a movie you would think is super rewatchable, but it's just so perfect. It is so beautiful. It is everything that cinema can be. I just love it so much. I haven't, but have you seen the three hour plus cut the Criterion Collection released? Yes. I'm, I, I'm, you would think that more Malik would be a good thing, but. Tree of Life, the version that we got at 139 minutes, just works so perfectly that I'm really glad it was released the way it was originally. Well, I saw the film, I think, earlier than most people because I, I was actually visiting my cousin in Washington, D.C., and, you know, it had played in New York and L.A., but it was uh, slowly expanding, and um, I just remember being, like, this uh, like I, I was excited because I was a fan of Malik and uh, I had seen the trailer and I had heard the mostly you know love of the film. I mean, it is a divisive film, but um, one Palm Nord can right the year it came out. Yeah, yeah. And we were talking about previously how the Oscars in general have been better. Like it did get nominated for best director, mm-hmm. uh, which like I don't think it would have if it had come out like 
even just 10 years earlier. Yeah. But, um, I always won a Oscar. Yeah. But, um, I just saw this movie and it just, it, it was one of those movies that felt like this is like a changing point in my film education, my film life. Like, the, like this is like a landmark and you just saw like movies had changed some, you know, the way the film is shot and the way it structures the film. It just feels um, revolutionary. And I just remember the, you know, it's like, uh, it's pretty early in the film, like 25 minutes in that segment that, that is about 25 minutes long is just earth shattering i mean literally <laughs> but i mean it's just so no it's like you've never seen anything like it yeah and i have a friend who's a filmmaker in the upstate who is uh, you know he, he's he's a liberal guy but he's very seriously religious and he says that the movie changed his life it, like he sincerely thinks that it's like you know it's a movie that deeply 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 means a lot to him and i'm not a particularly religious person myself but it's a film that is it, it it makes you think of the big questions it's it's yeah you know, I, I think it's up there with like 2001 a space odyssey as some of the, like the most ambitious movies ever made and achieving its ambition and not falling short now i'm going to disagree with you i don't think it's a perfect film i think it's a flawed movie but it's so beautiful well, it's just, and it's so all driven that even things you might think aren't necessarily working <laughs> like of course they would work in any other movie but they it's tree of life and you just need to go with it yeah and when i say it's flawed, it's like it's a river like... it just carries you along it's hard yeah. even to think of it as like a movie with mistakes it's like a, a document given to us by the heavens yeah i also th- i mean I, I get irritated when people go but the dinosaurs are stupid i love the dinosaurs like who cares you know it's <laughs> Yeah, um, but I saw it. I saw it twice in the theater. I, the second time I saw it, I went with a friend who had uh, taken some substances to alter his. <laughs> I, I've never seen it that way, but um, I, I and I did watch it for. We took a class where we watched Malik's first five films, and um, the third time was watching it for that class. But yeah, it's. Um, yeah, it's a staggering achievement. I think that it's going to go down. I, th- I think it's one of those movies that. 50, 100 years from now, it's going to be ranked as one of the best films of its time. It is, like, firmly in the canon, and I think, like, I mean, Malick had already stated his claim as, like, one of the great filmmakers ever, but this, as another entry into his uh, filmography, just totally solidified him as, like, one of the great visionary filmmakers. My favorite is still Days of Heaven, um, and like Tarantino, I would like that not all of his movies are three hours long, but um, I think that, and, and his first two movies are like, I think they're both like 93 minutes, mm-hmm. 94 minutes. But uh, I do think that tree of life is one of the, it's, it's one of those. I remember William Friedkin said once, like there were four or five movies that like changed movies. And I think that you got to add this to the list of like, if you made a list of, like the 10 most like revolutionary films, like the movies that change cinema, like the way we structure films and the way we look at films, I think it's up there. I think that is a good way to finish our rankings. And I'm just going to rapid fire hit you with my honorable mentions. You can have comment, no comment. I'm going to go by year. 
I know you don't have a list of your honorable mentions. <laughs> I have give something me, in my head. Give me a verdict, good, bad. Why, why do you think that this is uh, possibly available to be on here? But I'm going to go by year down from 2010 to 2019. Starting with 2010, Animal Kingdom, David Michaud. Saw it once in a theater, thought it was very good. Uh, Jack Weaver, great villain performance. Moneyball, 2011. I hate sports. I hate math. Really good example of a it can be about a subject you care nothing about. It was one of my top ten films of that year. It's one of Brad Pitt's best performances. Um, yeah, Bennett. Well, can I can I throw in one of mine? Uh huh. Okay. Um, one that would be. I mean, I, I I you know like the what you know lists are crazy and like who cares the ranking and you know you can take as soon as we stop recording I could change the order. I think Foxcatcher is one of the most underrated. I still actually films haven't seen of, it. Oh, I think that that movie is so haunting. And um, like you were saying, Adam McKay, he, uh, you know, I like some of his movies, but like his word on a movie is not like something to take it with <laughs> yes. a grain of salt. But he says that Foxcatcher is like one of the best films of the decade and that it's one of the most important films about America. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Steve Carell, Channing Tatum and Mark Ruffalo give like some of the best performance. I mean, Steve Carell is best. That was sort of the start of of serious Steve Carell. Yeah, and that movie is one that's a biopic of. I mean, it's based on true events, but it feels so real, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel manufactured to tell a story. And like this dialogue is written to. It just feels so real. Also, a sports movie. Yeah, Foxcatcher is an amazing. I might even have to put that in my top ten. Can we go back and change it now? (laughs) It's up there. It's way up there. Uh, the Raid, twenty eleven. Oh, I I adore both those movies. There's, so, I actually like the second one. You like the more. second one? I like the first one just because it's so spared down. The second minutes. one, I don't think everything works quite the same way everything works in the first one. Yeah, it's but the second one has the most like insane action scenes well, yeah, ever. Like the one in the prison yard is just like unbelievable. Yeah, and this uh, the in the car where it's like there's scenes in that movie you were like. Like, like Soderbergh with Fury, or like, how did they film that? Like, how are they not like, like, accidentally broke their, you know, arms off, and you know, and how did they like drive a car with? It's like insane. Yeah, I love those movies are amazing. Uh, the Master, twenty twelve. Paul yeah, Thomas I, Anderson. It's like it's almost like um, there are. Oh, well, the Master is on the list of movies along with like Inside Lewin Davis, where I watched it. I saw it in a theater and I was like, I know this film is really, really good and I really like it, but I have not gotten to the bottom of it after one viewing. It is an enigmatic movie. A lot of his movies are that way. I, yeah, that was one I liked a lot better the second time I saw it. Uh, Francis Ha, 2012, Noah Baumbach. This is not my favorite of his films, but um, Greta Gerwig's just so lovely. It's sort of most enjoyable, likable. It's a fun movie. It's not It's not a dour movie like he's friends with I have a friend who has that as his least favorite film of the decade. He Ooh. despises that. There are people that hate that movie. They just, it's like white, you know, it's not the manic pixie thing, but it's no. like, they, just, well, it's they, just they depiction just... of privileged upper class, young white people complaining yeah. about young privileged upper class lifestyle. I could see why someone could not like it. Yeah, uh, Lincoln favorite... 2012. Yeah. Lincoln. I tell people Lincoln is exactly the movie you expect it to be, but it's really good. Like yes. it's it's Steven Spielberg. Doing Great screenplay, movie. Tony Kushner. Yeah, it's um, 
yeah, it, it, that, that that's one of Spielberg's better films uh, this decade, this uh, century, I would say. Rust and Bone 2012, Jacques Audiard. Uh, I wasn't crazy about that movie. Oh, I love that movie. No. Uh, uh, I'm Gravity like... 2013, I think we've mentioned it. I, maybe not yeah. in this episode. No, no, we were talking, comparing it to, but yeah, it's, um, the, yeah, it's, uh, it's one of the best theater experiences I've ever had. Same here. Uh, Boyhood 2014, we mentioned that. It's up there for me. Birdman 2014? I really liked that movie, but I, I it wasn't in my top 20 that year. Yeah. Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, Wes Anderson. I'm not the, you, know, you see it just got announced in the Criterion Collection today. Yes, I did. Um, it's, I, I, I thoroughly enjoy Do you it. like his style? I know a lot of people think it's like too quirky, look at me I, kind of stuff. I, I thoroughly enjoy all of Wes Anderson's films. I think they're very entertaining. I don't know that I love any of them. They're I like just really cakes. like I, sweet yeah. sort of empty stuff. <laughs> well, no, it's not. I don't think that it's empty. It's well, just that yeah. it, it, it's just one of those directors. I'm like, this is such a solid, good movie, but it's not. My favorite of his is Fantastic Mr. Fox, which I don't. Mm. I think it was last decade. But yeah. I, yeah, Grand Budapest is like, you know, two or three for me. It's Son of Saul, twenty fifteen. Now this I was thinking about putting in the top ten. Yeah, that's a that's a heavy film. Very a, heavy film, but totally you know blows you away. Yeah. You know, it's super messed up. I saw T- Todd Solance where he did it. Uh, they ha- asked him to pick one of his movies and pair it with another movie, and he did Welcome to the Dollhouse with Night and Fog. Uh, and he describes Son of Saul like weekend at Bernie's at the Holocaust. <laughs> That's what he said, because they're trying to carry it on the body. That's yeah, kind of true. Yeah, but uh, you got a few more. Yes, Manchester by the Sea, 2016. The acting is what stands yes. out to me the best, and that, that's you know, amazing acting. Casey Affleck should should have won Best Actor. Yeah. Arrival, 2016. Yeah. Denny Villeneuve. Yeah, that's a good movie. I mean, I, none of, I, well, a few of these I didn't love, but yeah, that's a very good. I actually really like his film Enemy, which is like really mm-hmm. disturbing and Jake creepy. Gyllenhaal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Get Out, twenty seventeen. Yeah, that's a movie. I I think I underrated it because it got such amazing reviews. And I was like, yeah, it's a good movie. But then I saw it in my race and gender and horror class. I rewatched, and I was like, no, this really is like so smart and uh, good. Yeah, yeah. Lady Bird 2017, Greta Gerwig. I taught that in my female director's class, and it's lovely and hilarious and moving and just such a – it's like a movie you want to hug in the sun. And people yeah. should see Lady or uh, Little Women. We will be talking about that in the near future. Uh, Dunkirk yeah. 2017, Christopher Nolan. A masterful achievement. Um, I only saw it once in the theater. I don't want to see it at home. I, I I'm not the biggest fan of Christopher Nolan, but it was my favorite film of his since The Dark Knight. Uh, Roma, 2018. Oh, uh, amazing film! Beautiful, beautiful, We're a real work of art. Cold War, 2018. Uh, another one that I, I saw and I liked it a lot, but it, I just kind of was like, I need to think about this one more. Not that it's like real confusing, but. Uh, uh, yeah. Black Klansman, 2018. That was a lot of fun. If yeah. Beale Street I've could shot... talk, twenty eighteen. Yeah, I really like that. Now, so you don't like Fury Road as much as me? Like you wouldn't? Uh, where would that? Like if no, you had to it, rank was, every... I, it was in my honorable mentions. It was in my top ten for the longest time, 
But yeah. when I kept thinking of other ones to put in the top ten, somehow I kept putting that one lower and lower. And I kind of knew that it was going to be on yours. I just didn't know how high it was going to be, so that's why I didn't put it on the top ten. I will um, definitely watch it any day of the week over before midnight. I will watch it any day of the week over First Reformed or Call Me By Your Name or La La Land even. But you know, Well, let me just off the top of my head, some that we First Reformed would be high on my list. Uh, the Florida Project was my uh, favorite film that year. That would be very high uh, as my great favorite. Great Willem Dafoe in that movie. Right. Um, okay. Okay, like just like twenty seconds. Like, what what are like your what's like your one or two or three favorite films of the previous decade, just for reference? Uh, what do you mean of the two thousands? Of the one, yeah, the decade before that, two thousand, two thousand nine. Just uh, like I definitely No Country for Old Men. Uh, definitely there will be blood. Uh, I don't know. I like Memento a lot. Okay, my three are number one, Synecdoche, New York, Charlie Kaufman. Number two, Mulholland Drive. Yes. Three, Inland Empire, uh, David Lynch. I'm a, I am a David Lynch freak, so those are my definitely ranked top three films of the decade before the one we just went through. So we're totally rambling now, but I hope it was fun. And Glorious Bastards. Yeah, we'll finish with that. <laughs> Thank you, Zodiac. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah no, no Country for Old Men and There Will Be Blood would both be in my top ten of uh, that decade. So thank you for listening. We will have a best of 2019 uh, coming soon after Jonathan has seen little women. And hopefully I will have seen pain and glory and maybe something else before them. But yeah, thank you for listening. Do you want to do our top 10? Just rapid fire by the end. I'll start 10 was before midnight. Nine was inside Lewin Davis. Eight was first reformed. Seven Wolf of wall street. Six, one Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Five, Call Me By Your Name. Four, La La Land. Three, Take a Taylor Soldier Spy. Two, The Social Network. One, The Tree of Life. Ten, Before Midnight. Nine, Whiplash. Eight, The Act of Killing. Seven, Tony Erdman. Six, Poetry. Five, The Irishman. Four, Blue is the Warmest Color. Three, Under the Skin. Two, The Tree of Life. One, Mad Max, Fury Road. Great decade of movies. Thank you for listening. Uh, we will be back with y'all next time. Para, 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 para.